Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. Today we continue our exploration of the Heredity Special Issue, celebrating the Genetic Society's centenary. This issue is cram-packed with creative, thoughtful, mind-blowing review articles from past presidents of the Society. They're free to access on the Heredity website, and the scientific stories they contain are written in a way that makes them accessible to all. But stories is an interesting word. Often, I don't think the scientists really see their papers as a form of storytelling, because they've been trained to extract themselves from their work as much as possible. Yes, they're a part of the scientific story for sure, but their personal experience, their humanity, that's just not what they're trying to communicate. They also may worry that the act of storytelling may be seen as a form of fabrication, an act of deception, a figment of the imagination rather than a distillation of objective truth. But of course, science is a storytelling activity. And what's more, the unique levels of human intelligence that allow us to be scientists in the first place may have evolved out of a natural need for us to be good storytellers. To explore these ideas, I caught up with the ever-thoughtful and creative Enrico Cohen. And the recording isn't always great here, that's my bad, but it's so interesting that I really don't think you're going to notice it much. Yeah, hi James. I'm Enrico Cohen, and I'm a geneticist at the John Innes Centre, running a research team looking into the mechanisms of plant development and evolution. So what we're going to discuss is a couple of things that you've written for the Heredity Special Issue, which is jam-packed with articles by past presidents of the Genetic Society. And you've written two things in this, and the first one is an editorial. And if I'm honest, it might be one of my favourite bits of creative science writing I've read so far this year. So what is the story that's in it? Well, it's really a parody on the way we like to classify things, uh, including ourselves. So scientists are no different from other communities in forming sort of specializations and tribal groupings. And you take biology, we have geneticists, cell biologists, biochemists, embryologists. And so I thought as it's 100 years of the genetics society, it might be fun to take a look at geneticists from the outside, as it were, as a species with peculiar obsessions and traits. I mean, it's rather strange, really, that as geneticists, we spend all our time with our favorite model organism, controlling who crosses with who, counting the number of spots and bristles they have, and then grinding them up and extracting their DNA. These are not everyday activities. And so I kind of take a look at these activities as a curious viewer. And also in the article, I discuss the issue, what will happen to Homo geneticus in the future? Will genetics be subsumed into other disciplines or will it sort of stand alone in its own right? And only time will tell, of course. For sure. It is just a lot of fun reading it. It gave me a bit of a laugh. Thank you very much. So (laughs) it is a really entertaining piece of writing. And one thing that it kind of flares up for me is that it's kind of focusing on how the field got where it is. But how did you become a fully-fledged member of Homo Geneticus? Well, I suppose it all began when I was a second year undergraduate, when I was trying to decide what to do in my third year. Would I do genetics or chemistry? So one day I'd wake up thinking, yes, it's going to be genetics. And the next day I'd wake up and think, no, chemistry is what I'm going to be. So I carried on oscillating violently like this until one day I learned that genetics lectures start at 9.30 in the morning instead of 9am <laughs> and uh, they serve you coffee during the exam. So I thought these are obviously civilised people. And so really the rest is history. I went to study genetics and I went from there on. Nice. And also a, a love obsession with coffee in your academic career, I guess, was born as well. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So before we get on to the review article, we mentioned a minute ago that you had been a previous Genetic Society president. So maybe you could just tell us when that was and what the experience was like. Well, it was a few years ago now. I can't remember the exact date, to be honest. But it was a great honour to be elected as president of the Genetic Society. 
One of the great things about doing that is it's a fantastic opportunity to work together with the committee to do good things for genetics research and communication. And one of the things I was proudest of, really, during my sort of tenure, my, you, you get elected for three years, was to initiate a science communication course. It's been running six years now. Every year, 20 or so PhD students and postdocs get together with science communicators to discuss ways in which they can improve their skills in getting their ideas across using a number of practical uh, illustrations. I actually remember that science communication course because I was on it a few years ago. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, really? I was, I was. Which year were you on it? Oh, which year was that? I think it was 2015, 2016? Wow, that's 2016. Um, yeah, so I, I remember going there not sure what to expect and then having to do stand-up and role-playing <laughs> and various other bits. Brilliant. So, um... I guess if we move on to your actual review article in this special issue, which is the main thing that we're here to talk about, which is called The Storytelling Arms Race, Origin of Human Intelligence and the Scientific Mind. And it's kind of based around, broadly, a question that you actually asked to students at this uh, science communication workshop. So what is that question? Yeah, so each time I ask the students, uh, why is it that we tell stories? And they always come back with a set of very positive, encouraging answers. They say we tell stories to inform, to share knowledge, to engage others, to entertain. And then after they've gone through this list and they're kind of running out of steam, I say to them, well, might there be some negative reasons that we tell stories? And that unleashes a whole new set of ideas that we tell stories to manipulate, to deceive, to mislead, to lie. And it's really important, I think, in storytelling that we understand that stories are two-headed beasts. They have their good and dark side, as it were. And that's really part of understanding how and why we relate them and also why we're skeptical sometimes about them. Yeah, definitely. It's a very interesting thing to consider. And I think a lot of people would be fairly used to skepticism being a part of science. But I'm not sure many people would really think that storytelling was within the realm of science. But that's kind of not the point of this article. So what are the main ideas that you're exploring? Well, the main idea really is where our intelligence as humans comes from. I mean, we have this amazing ability to imagine all sorts of alternative worlds, express all sorts of ideas, do science, mathematics. But it's hard to see how any of those skills and abilities gave a reproductive success to our ancestors. I mean, what was the driving force that selected these abilities? And the idea of the article is that this really traces back to the notion of storytelling. The storytelling underlies our intelligence. Now, that might seem like a strange idea because we normally think that we need intelligence and an elaborate language in order to tell stories. So it's like putting a cart before the horse. But that assumes that early stories were as sophisticated as the stories of today. It could well be that primitive stories were rather crude affairs that had like a, a simple problem resolution structure like predator coming, follow me. And as soon as, <laughs> yeah, and as soon as honest stories like that come along, then the possibility comes along also for deception. So suppose a male is trying to have his way with a female and the female's not keen. So the male says, predator coming, follow me. So that means that as soon as storytelling came on the scene, there would have been selective pressure in order to determine whether a story is to be believed or not, to evaluate stories, no matter how crude they were. And uh, one way in which we evaluate 
stories is by looking for contradictions. Is what they've said consistent with the evidence? Is what they've said consistent with what they said earlier? And so there would have been pressure to look for contradictions and develop reasoning and our abilities to look for contradictions in order to detect lies. And the better we became at detecting lies, so the more sophisticated stories had to become in order to deceive effectively. And so there was this storytelling's arms race between truth and deception in the stories we told that drove intelligence to greater, greater heights and our ability to detect contradictions as well. Now, one of the things, as you pointed out, that scientists are expert in is looking for contradictions, about being sceptical about stories. Well, we try. <laughs> we try. That's right. It's, part of, it's an essential part of science, isn't it? Um, and so we're looking for contradictions. Is what they say consistent with the evidence? You know, if, if somebody says the earth is flat or that um, mice spontaneously generate from dirty rags, should we believe them? No, we should check, we should do the experiments, we should find out if what they say is consistent with the evidence. And if there is a contradiction, then we need to come up with better ideas, alternative ideas. So this evaluation is always going on in science. And really, the idea is that this ability to criticize and evaluate ideas really came from our earlier ability to train our minds on storytelling, to figure out whether somebody was telling us the truth or not. We used those same skills and then applied them to the stories that we tell about how the world works. And that was really the origins of science. Yeah, no, it, it's a very compelling piece and it has some really good ideas in it. And I guess it, because we're looking back 100 years of genetics research with the centenary of the Genetic Society, I wonder if you, uh, how you think this storytelling arms race has uh, influenced scientific inquiry over, say, the past 100 years? Well, actually, I think it kind of goes even beyond that, because without stories, we wouldn't be able to do science at all. We wouldn't be able to share our scientific findings, at least stories in the sense that I'm using them. Let's suppose you make a discovery, you want to share your findings with somebody else. How are you going to do that? Well, you're going to start by stating the problem. Okay, let's suppose the problem is we don't understand how heredity works. Having stated that problem, you then go through a series of demonstrations, say some experiments, you cross some pea plants together and you look at the progeny and the colors or phenotypes that arise. And so you follow a chain of argument and you end up with some sort of resolution, some sort of hypothesis that explains or resolves the experiments and problems that you've raised. And that's really this way stories are structured. If you take a murder mystery, for example, you start with a problem, somebody's being killed, you then go through a chain of events through which at the end of the day you end up with a resolution with the murderer being caught. And so really stories really are part and parcel of how we communicate science. We can't really communicate in any other way because of our brains are wired to communicate through stories. But of course that brings in the possibility of fakery. And so with storytelling comes the possibility that you might fake data or fake your arguments. And so that's a very important part of science is to look through those, to evaluate and criticize the stories we hear as well and check that they're not fraudulent in any way. Luckily for science, most stories we tell, most scientists are honest in their storytelling, do the best of their ability to try and convey what they've learned in an open and transparent way. It doesn't mean they're always right, of course, scientists can be wrong and often are, but there is no intentional deception. So intentional deception is relatively rare in science, but a very important thing to monitor and to make sure it's kept rare. Yeah, for sure. But kind of thinking about it, I mean, you, you were talking there about storytelling being kind of core to science 
So I wonder if there are any scientific stories that you are aware of where storytelling might have played a really influential role in how scientific ideas were shared. Well, one of the most interesting stories, I guess, that became very well known is the story of the discovery of DNA by Watson and Crick. So Watson, of course, wrote a book all about the story of discovery. So in science, you could say there are two types of stories behind every discovery. There's the story of how the discovery was made, and then there's the story of how the discovery is disseminated. So normally the discovery is disseminated through a scientific paper or a presentation. And in Watson and Crick's case, there was a famous paper in Nature that was published on the structure of DNA and the double helix. But then Watson, I think 15 or so years later, wrote the other story, the story about how the DNA structure was discovered. And it's very interesting to compare that story to the story that was published. Watson, for example, reveals very clearly in the double helix where he talks about the discovery, the vital role that Rosalind Franklin played in the discovery of the DNA structure. There's no doubt in reading his book of the role that she played. And yet in their published paper, they claim that their discoveries were largely done based on published experimental data. So it's quite an interesting story because there we have both the account of an individual who sees how that discovery was made from their perspective, and also the public account of the scientific publication that communicated that discovery to others. And it's interesting to compare the two. And of course, it was a momentous discovery in the field of genetics as well. So that's a very rich story, which has been um, discussed in many different circles. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's still one of probably the most widely discussed and sort of controversial issues in genetics. But um I guess it's kind of interesting there how you're talking about these different ways that um, this story was communicated about the DNA discovery. And you kind of end this article with a bit of a warning about the speed at which stories can travel these days over platforms like social media and where they receive really very little scrutiny. And I guess kind of following on from your PhD workshops where you're talking about science communication, I wonder what advice you might give to someone early on in their career about how they might communicate their stories effectively and clearly and remain sort of truthful to their scientific message. Well, one of the things I would encourage somebody starting to try and communicate their science, what I would encourage them to do is to think, first of all, very carefully about the message that they're trying to get across. You know, can they express their idea in a single sentence? What is the kind of premise of their message? If you take Watson and Crick's paper, if we go back to that, for example, you might say the premise of their paper was DNA is a double helix. And once you've identified your premise, you then need to somehow engage your audience in trying to follow up the work that you've done in relation to that. And the best way of doing that is to introduce a problem. So usually when people are told how to communicate or given advice on how to communicate, they're encouraged to introduce background as the first thing they do. The trouble with introducing your work with background is that people will wonder, why are you telling me this background? So it's much more effective if you can very quickly introduce the problem. What is the problem? So in the case of Watson and Crick's paper, they start with the problem is the previous structures of DNA are unsatisfactory. That's the problem that they begin with. And once you've introduced a problem, then you go through a chain of demonstration showing how that problem, by resolving how one problem leads to another and how by resolving those problems, you eventually arrive at the demonstration of your premise. So it's being aware of the structure of the story, really. Again, it comes back to storytelling. Knowing how to structure your story in terms of the sort of problem and a chain of events or a chain of demonstration and a resolution always in relation to 
the premise that you have in mind. And it takes time to formulate these stories. It, it takes time to figure out what is the premise. Most people would find it hard, and myself included, sometimes to say, well, what is it when I'm trying to say in a single sentence? And the reason that's hard is because you have to work hard at trying to consolidate and extract the essence of what it is you're trying to get across. And there's this famous quote, I think, from Mark Twain, who writes a letter to somebody and says, I'm sorry this letter is so long. I didn't have time to write a short one. So the work <laughs> of extracting and defining what you want to say can be quite challenging. Yeah, I completely agree. I still think one of the most challenging things anybody has ever asked me to do is to describe my research in three sentences. <laughs> An almost yeah. impossible task. But worth trying to do. I think even if you don't arrive at your three sentences, the act of trying to do that is a great way of clarifying your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess for this discussion, we've kind of been focusing on human intelligence, but you do have some early examples in this review about potential storytelling in other animals. So I wonder if there's any examples that you're particularly fond of. Yes, it's interesting to compare our storytelling with probably the most sophisticated symbolic language we know of in other animals, which is the dance of honeybees. So you could think that when a worker bee is doing a waggle dance to communicate to her sisters the whereabouts of a food source, it's a bit like telling a story to her sisters about where some food is to be found. But unlike human storytelling, the, the dance of the bee, every move, every word, as it were, in that language has been honed by natural selection. And so it's a very rigid system, very little flexibility in arriving at new words or saying anything different than, say, there's some food to be had at such and such a distance and direction. Whereas with human stories, we not only can learn new words we can also vary the problems and the chain of reasoning that we talk about and the topic that we're talking about in an almost infinite number of different ways. And so in that sense, I would say humans are really the only true storytelling animals. And it's storytelling that makes us unique. It's what really has led to our incredible intelligence and our ability to imagine all these alternative worlds and hypotheses and doubt all sorts of ideas and come up with new ones. It's all derived from that fact that we're storytelling animals through and through. Yeah, it, it is pretty incredible, and your review has me fully convinced of that. Although I would like to see more storytelling in humans through dance. I think we could learn from the bees. <laughs> um, well, Professor Cohen, thank you very much for speaking to us and sharing your stories. I hope everyone will go and read them. Thank you, thank you. And it was great to find out that you were on the course. I mean, it's kind of justified in one fell swoop us putting that on. That was Professor Enrico Cohen from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. He was president of Gensalk from 2012 to 2015, and his articles in the special issue are brilliant, thoughtful, and free to access on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And if you're a PhD or postdoc and you're interested in the science communication workshop we discussed, you can find out about that on the Genetic Society's website. That's gensalk.org.uk forward slash grants forward slash commuresci. I went on it, and it was not what I was expecting at all. It was more creative, more engaging, and more fun than I ever could have hoped for. In the next episode, we're back to discussing research articles from the pages of Heredity. But I hope you've enjoyed these glimpses into the minds of Gensok presidents. And I hope they will encourage you to be a bit more playful in your research and tell more stories about what you find. And who knows, if you publish in Heredity, you may be able to tell those stories right here on the podcast. Until then, I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.